we continue looking at the Psalms together, Psalm 57 is very similar to Psalm uh, 56, both with the same emphasis and set in that period of time in which David found himself fleeing from uh, the wicked uh, King Saul. Hear the word of the Lord, inspired and inerrant. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mitum of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Oh, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake like the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that your word is not only true, but it's also relevant to our daily living. That you have picked up and carried along the prophets and apostles of old. That you have put words in their mouth and you put letters on their pens and Indeed, O God, you have had them live and speak under inspiration of matters very similar to what we face in our own lives. We ask, O God, that we may learn and be more like Christ, all to your glory in his name. Amen. David, not yet king, but heir to the throne by the anointing of God, By the hand of Samuel, he never visited Fingal's cave in Scotland. What a pity. And perhaps one day when the Lord comes back, he will get to go and see it for himself. We, this evening, do not gather in Fingal's cave, but we gather with David as he sings that song that he wrote... Because he hid in a cave. This is a cave song. A song in which, a psalm in which we hear words come forth and echo through the chamber and out the door that we might learn of our Lord that He is our only glory 
and our only hope. You see, this psalm teaches us a number of things. The opening half of the psalm teaches us that distress deserves doxology. Distress deserves doxology. It opens with a cry for mercy, just like the previous psalm, as we saw last week. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Here David sings to us that only the Creator can save a soul in distress. You see, God is the one who has made us. God is the one who gives us life and breath and strength. God has made us with all of our strengths and our talents and our abilities. He is the one to whom we owe life and all that we know and see and enjoy. And David turns to God, his creator, in his time of need. He cries to him while hidden in a cave. There he is inside of that cave, hoping that they will not see him in the back, trusting that they will not enter in and take his life. He is there in that place, and perhaps he even sees or or hears them pass by. And what does he do in that cold, dark, damp, crouching place? He thinks of the tabernacle of God. He thinks of hiding in the shadow of God's wings. Perhaps even uh, those wings of God that are seen in the, in the Holy of Holies, uh, above the Ark of the Covenant. His mind, His heart, His soul go to the place in which God alone dwelt in worship at that time. God in the tabernacle which He had appointed was on the heart and mind of David as he hid in the cave. And in the cave, as he cried out to the Lord, as his heart sang to God in the time of his distress, he tells us more in that cry for mercy, not just that the Creator is the one to turn to in distress, but also that the sustainer, the providential sustainer of our lives, is the one who can protect a soul in danger. I cry out to God Most High, he says, to God who fulfills His purpose for me, and He trusts that He will send from heaven and save me. Uh, This language that he uses for God is very interesting. It's a compound set of language which points to God not just uh, generically, but very specifically, very emphatically, that He is the one who rules over all things. That all that happens to Him in His daily life, and even in that moment as He crouches down in the cave, that the God of every promise is in charge. Look at what David reminds us to be assured of. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Perhaps you love the study of history. Uh, Perhaps you're a buff of Old Testament history. Perhaps you're imagining what it would be like to be in that situation, in that cave, your, your heart pounding, wondering if you'll be safe. And David knows that he's safely in the hands of God, the God of all providence, the one who sustains his life, his purpose, his covenant purposes, his great covenant of grace 
will not be overturned. He will never turn his back on his covenant promises to his people. He will fulfill his purposes in the life of David. Even as Jesus, as he sang this psalm during his own earthly ministry, knew that the Father would see him faithfully through, that his purposes from before even time began, the eternal decree of God, that all of God's sovereign agenda would be fulfilled even through and in his own life to his glory. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. And then there's that little Shelah where we're supposed to stop and muse and feel the moment and weight of the words that yes, God is most high. He is almighty. He is the creator. He is my sustainer. And even though my enemy stalks me there, he will rescue and he will save. And the verse ends with the emphatic statement, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. You see, David's not talking the way that uh, one of the main characters does on Apollo 13. You remember that, that great movie? Remember sitting and watching and wondering what would happen? Are they going to going to make it back around from the other side of the moon? Or are they going to make it through the, the blackout as the, as the spacecraft comes back down, the, the command module back down and, and plunges into the sea? Will they be alive or will they be dead? One of the key characters is on tape and it's played on national and international television. That, you know, things just have a way of working out. That... Uh, you get in some difficult situations and, and it's just the way the world is. It just all works out. Things work out fine. And people took comfort in that vague, broad, and patently false proverb of the world. Things work out because of the covenant love of God. Things work out according to His purpose which He fulfills. He keeps all of His covenant promises. All things work together for good for those that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. It's His steadfast love. It's His faithfulness. Evil. The wicked ways of Saul. Those horrible, treacherous men who serve Him like Doag the Edomite. They... They don't have things work out just okay in the end. They face the temporal hand of God and certainly His eternal judgment. But the child of God, David, knowing that he had the covenant promises in his hand, that he had a special role to play in redemptive history, that he was not alone, but he was safe, united to Christ our Lord, He had every confidence and ground of assurance from God's word that the Lord would see his purposes safely through in his life. Indeed. So the cry for mercy is very clear. The Lord is the one to whom we should cry out. And then David changes key. In verse 4, he sings to us about the crook in our lot. 
Now, I don't know if Thomas Boston ever visited Fingal's Cave, but if he did not because of the difficulty of transportation in his own century and day, I am quite sure when the Lord comes again, he'll be able to go for a tour. Thomas Boston, that great Scottish preacher, I think uh, the volume of his sermons and writings takes up an entire pastor's shelf. I, I think I'm right that Pastor uh, Greco has those. If he doesn't have them in printed volume, he has them electronically. You can be sure. He wrote a book, a, a sermon entitled The Crook in the Lot. You know, our lot in life is not always smooth. It's not always easy. Sometimes there's a crook in that lot that we face. There's a difficulty. Here, David sings to us in a minor key of what we face. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Now, I've only been in a couple of caves before. But I have watched Batman. And I have seen Indiana Jones. Did you know, even in Star Trek and in SG-1, periodically they beam down into a cave and they meet the most exotic and dangerous of characters. What lurks in a cave terrifies the soul of man. And David here speaks of lions and fiery beasts. And so we wonder... Which monster is it? Which kind of vermin might bite? What is it that in the created order that, that he fears this is a fallen world and things are not as they were intended to be? Our first father and our first mother, uh, the delegated heads of creation, having a role to play over all the earth. When they fell, creation began groaning. And fire ants were born, and they took over Texas. <laughs> My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. David's reminding us of that fallen world. And he's using an illustration from nature. His point is not to talk about the lion that might be in the cave or the snakes that might be there to strike. Certainly there could have been those. But he's talking about the fallen church. You see, the ones who are lurking on the outside, that seek to take his life, that want to undo him and put him to death, it's the head of the theocracy of Israel. It's King Saul who was chosen at the insistence of the people of God. And he has with him his royal entourage of military might. It is the church of God and the nation of God that seek to undo David, though he is the man after God's own heart. There's a lesson there for us. David's problem was not fundamentally the world as much as it was the church. And if you wonder about how relevant that is to anyone else's life... Just remember Jesus. The Romans were bad. But the Sanhedrin was much worse. The Romans would have let him go. But the Sanhedrin backed them in a political corner. 
and forced their hand. And so they did the bidding of the Jewish leaders of the visible church in that day. Oh, if it was true for our Lord, it can be true for us as well. We do well to remember that when we look, whether it be on television or on the internet, uh, when we pick up a magazine, when, when we turn on cable and we hear the strangest kind of accent with fluffy hair and no understanding of the gospel at its core, we should not be surprised. Because false prophets and false teaching have been abundant. Those who are within the visible church seeking to undo the things of Christ and of His gospel have been plain since the earliest of days. And sometimes it comes down to lions and beasts who have teeth as spears and tongues as arrows and sharp swords. David is here singing to us that we are a fallen race. That all the children of man indeed fall because of sin. You see, no one's left standing. We bite, we tear, we cut one another. If we were only still just disorganized dust, there wouldn't be so much moral offense to the Almighty in it. But we are fallen creatures. And as in verse 4, we reach the lowest bass tones that vibrate in the hearts and lives of each one of us. The Holy Spirit then picks up David and lifts him to the top of his crescendo, puts words in his mouth for himself and his own life and for Jesus and his ministry, and we hear him break out in the universal refrain in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. If the world has fallen, if it's fallen so far and so hard that even the visible church is affected, that even our own lives are touched, then the good news of the gospel is joy and exultation indeed, is it not? That God is not just in the heavens, He's above them. And that God is the one whose glory shines not just in your life or mine, but in all the earth. And then, the second stanza is reached. And there's something of a repetition, but a little different order. The crook in the lot is where we begin at verse 6. And in this final stanza, we hear that the problems we face in this life should prompt praise. That problems should prompt praise. You see, sinful opposition and scheming harms the souls of men. Verse 6 says, They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. And we stop and we pause and we ruminate on that good and kind providence of God. This opposition against David and against our Lord harms their own souls and harms ours as well. But God is not idle. He's not asleep. He's not late to the show. He always sees 
He always acts according to His purposes divine. And sometimes, He acts triumphantly in the moment rather than merely bringing judgment eternally on His enemies. And the reflex of praise then breaks forth from the psalm. It's as if the Hebridean overture swells with loud notes and joyous sound. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake with a dawn. Here David is waking himself up in the cave. He's rousing himself not just to sing, but also to play. You know, his voice was good. But the fingers that he used with his harp were even better. And so he makes his lyre, his harp, to sing in praise to God. Oh, this reflex of praise reminds us that the proper believing response to such danger and difficulty is to look to God. And that the believer uses every good gift that God gives. You know, you may have that little, uh, that little Scottish problem of just a little, well, a little melancholy down every once in a while. I will go to my grave remembering Professor Archie Boyd. Every morning of the weekday, I would arrive at the back door as he was coming down the steps. I would begin to ascend and I would say, Good morning, Principal Boyd. How are you? in the most cheerful American voice I could. And he would always say with his Lewis Dower response, Oh, surviving. (laughs) Sometimes we feel as if we just survive. Well, you turn on the Hebridean overture. You pick up your lyre. Uh, You sing to the Lord. You use every means and encouragement, every good means that He's put at hand to stir your heart up. Because David here is showing us that our Praise and thanksgiving is the proper reflex to difficulties that we face because God is a covenant God. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. David gets excited not just about what's happening in that cave, He gets interested and concerned not just about his own feelings and his own life and his own safety. He has his eyes fixed on Jesus. He has his eyes fixed on the covenant of grace and the unfolding of the gospel. And that these nations, even those Philistines in Gath, they will some come to praise the name of the Lord. God's covenant love. And His immutable faithfulness are our rock. And that is what grounds the praise that we bring. Even praise publicly. Praise, if I can say it, which is downright missional and covenantal in its scope. And the psalm ends with the same universal refrain. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. Now in singing for us, you need to remember that David is singing 
a song that you also sing. You're just like David. And in this same respect, you're just like David's greater son. You face distress, and you must learn by your distresses to cry out to the Lord for His mercy. You face problems, and you must learn to praise His name. You see, you have to learn to step back from it all. You have to look at that big picture. Not starting when you were married. Not starting even when you were born. You need to go back all the way to Eden. And then from that launching pad, back before time began into the eternal counsels of Almighty God. And from the point at which the triune God declares His purpose to make you and to love you and to save you and to send His Son for you and to bring glory to His name even from your lips in your life, you can then move forward to Bethlehem and to Calvary. And from Bethlehem and Calvary you think about your life. You look at that situation that you face, serious and dangerous though it might be. From that place and from that point, you review your life and situation. And you respond to your distress just like David sings. With trust in God. By calling on His mercies. By singing and declaring His praise, which is only possible, not because of how you feel, not because of even how you obey, but because of His covenant promises and covenant love, which is true and sure. Respond with praise and thanksgiving for the salvation that God gives in His Son. And so, then you too may learn to sing with David in the cave. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here the Lord calls you to lose yourself, quite frankly. To lose yourself in His program, in His agenda, in His covenant, in His unfolding providence, in His eternal purposes in the world. Find your place in that. That is your north star. Clean your glasses in the truth of His Word and you will see a right. Let us pray.